Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Deputy Chief Economist here at Aberdeen. And today we're talking about China, the rebound out of the Shanghai lockdown, the challenges of sticking with zero COVID, and what happens after the 20th Congress when President Xi Jinping hopes to secure an unprecedented third term. And I'm very pleased to say we have two great guests joining us in this discussion. Adam Wolf is the Emerging Market Economist and China Specialist at the Macro Market Consultancy Absolute Strategy Research, with a deep background in covering the Chinese economy and politics. And Robert Gilhuey is the Senior Emerging Market Economist here at Aberdeen. And previously, he ran the Bank of England's forecasts for the Chinese economy. So two real experts, and we're going to learn a lot. Adam, Bob, welcome to the podcast. So Adam, let's start with you and let's talk a bit about the economic rebound out of the Shanghai lockdown in China. How strong is that rebound proving to be as the economy reopens? Is the data doing well? Is it stronger or weaker relative to previous emergence from lockdowns in China? Uh, Well, so far we have seen a pretty strong reopening effect since the very beginning of June um, because we had Beijing, Shanghai, and Jilin and, and other cities all reopening basically at the the same time. And so subway traffic and other high frequency data all show this really abrupt jump in activity when that happened. But since then it's kind of leveled off and activity looks to be at about more normal levels. There are some signs that we're seeing, you know, pent up consumer demand being released, at least in the June data. And with auto sales jumping by about 20% year on year after contracting the previous two months. But I think from here, it's really unclear which way the economy is going to go. Most importantly, I guess the the big question is, is China going to stumble back into a lockdown situation? You know, do we have these newer variants of Omicron spreading that look like they're more contagious? And just in the past week or so, we've seen Shanghai and Xi'an and and a few other cities reimposing some restrictions. And so if cities do go back into lockdown, then growth is obviously going to suffer again. And I guess another question would be, Beyond this reopening effect, how much damage has zero COVID and these kind of periodic and rolling lockdowns, how much damage has that done to consumer sentiment? You know, because if you look at the survey data from Q2, it was just pretty much awful across the board. You had record low consumer confidence, record low confidence in, in household incomes, record low bank loan demand, and everything was basically at, at record lows. But obviously, that was distorted by the lockdowns in the largest cities. And, and there are some signs in the harder data of an improvement with you know, housing sales picking back up, loan growth looking relatively strong in June. And so it does seem like sentiment is improving. Um, but I think that there's probably an upper limit to how much that sentiment can improve and so how sustainable this recovery can really be from here. Absolutely. And Bob, are you expecting this recovery to be durable when zero COVID is still in place? I mean, we, we're already seeing, as Adam highlighted, a few areas and cities experience renewed outbreaks of COVID. How long can this rebound continue while we've still got the zero COVID policy ongoing? Yeah, I think, you know, I think at least in the near term, prospects seem you know reasonably good. And I do, I'd agree with a lot of what Adam as just said, I mean, you know, just just the normalisation of activity, I guess, to some extent, should drive like a fairly decent sequential rebound in terms of growth going into 
into Q3, you know, we're still expecting uh, a contraction in, in Q2, but obviously a lot depends on, you know, how frequently these restrictions and lockdowns are going to be needed to maintain the kind of dynamic zero uh, COVID. I'm certainly hopeful anyway, that this kind of more highly attentive policy would, you know, avoid the disruption on the kind of the scale that we've seen in, in Shanghai going forward. But I do still think it, you know, implies uh, you know, fairly frequent targeted restrictions, which could kind of average out as a moderate, moderate headwind, but shouldn't necessarily, you know, impede that overall recovery. Uh, but, you know, you raise the question about how durable it is. Well, I guess it's not just, it's not just the zero COVID clearly that's kind of dominating our view at the moment, but, you know, how China proceeds also with kind of other sides, like the regulatory changes around property, which still looks kind of very, very weak. Uh, how China's potentially as well kind of fearing, so we go into 2023 and potentially, you know, there with our US recession risks uh, crystallise as well towards the, towards the end of the year. So, so there's a lot of kind of, I think, big risks on, on that front. So let's get into some of those questions then uh, uh, that will affect the, the durableness or otherwise of this recovery. And as we've been saying, how long zero COVID actually remains in place is clearly absolutely critical. Adam, what, what needs to happen then for China to eventually turn away from zero COVID? What do authorities need to do to eventually pull back from the zero COVID? I mean, is it just more vaccine rollout? What, what are we wanting to see? It's a little bit difficult to say, I think, um, just because it's, it's as much a political decision as it is a public health mm-hmm. decision. On the politics side, I think it's pretty clear. We have the, the National Party Congress later this year, um, where the top leadership is, is going to be turned over. Um, so that seems to suggest that we're not going to see any major change in policy before October or maybe November at the earliest. And that's just because they want, they want political stability ahead of that that important congress right they can't afford a huge outbreak yeah exactly they wouldn't want to go into that congress with an outbreak underway yeah and then on the public health side i think you're right that the, the key criteria has to be vaccination rates so some studies based on the, the recent outbreak in hong kong suggest that the chinese inactivated vaccines do work about as well as the mrna vaccines but only with the booster jab which is two doses they don't work nearly as well so China's vaccination rates are very high, with more than 90% of the population um, having two jabs, but less than 60% actually have the, the booster jab. And for those over 60, you know, only 80% actually got two jabs, um, but a, a little bit more than 60 actually have been boosted. So they're a little bit better on that, that side. And I think that you would have to see at least 85% of those, especially in the over 60 age bracket, being fully boosted before there could be a, a significant relaxation of policy. And is, is that a quick process? Because one kind of imagines Chinese policymakers as being able to do mass programs like that at, at speed, but it sounds like actually it's gone more slowly than, than in many other economies. Yeah, I, I think the problem has gotten worse lately, not, not better. And part of that is because as we saw these outbreaks in, in Shanghai and Beijing, that's really encouraged other cities beyond just the the two largest, to to ramp up their mass testing protocols. And that's redirected a lot of resources from vaccinating people to testing for COVID. And so they they really need to find a way to do both, which means that it just puts even more fiscal pressure on local governments who are struggling to cope with a collapsing housing market and falling tax revenue due to all of these, the tax rebates that they've done to, to offer stimulus for this year. And so the pace is slow to the extent that it's probably going to be the middle of next year if they're 
they keep this pace, that they could you know, hit some sort of 85% vaccination rate and feel confident that they can reopen the economy more safely. Bob, are there, are there chances that even that timeline, that mid-2023 reopening slip, say if, if China want to do an Omicron-specific vaccine, you know, are, there, are there risks that, that actually zero COVID becomes a semi-permanent feature of, of China? Probably not semi-permanent, but I think there is a, a pretty good chance that zero COVID actually persists for longer. You know, it's, it's my central case that they'll move away from it sort of a bit after the 20th Congress. But I do see a few key risks. I mean, first of all, you know, they've set themselves a very high bar with the focus on, on zero. So given the high transmissibility of Omicron, to some extent, you know, it's, it's probably a bit of an all or nothing move. And they need to be ready for very high case numbers. Uh, stemming from that move. So the idea that you could say, kind of remove restrictions in some areas and keep COVID out of others seems like uh, wishful thinking. So I think that really implies you to be very confident you could deal with those large case numbers. Uh, we generally believe, you know, there's worse healthcare coverage uh, in rural areas. These also have a slightly higher share of the elderly population in them. So, you know, that could delay relaxation if you want to say improve emergency facilities such as ICUs uh, and or, I guess, ensure adequate supplies of the COVID pill, which they don't really currently have uh, to reduce these kind of healthcare, uh, health healthcare kind of strains. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure of the very latest numbers, but, you know, as of about April, China had about 400 makeshift hospitals uh, with capacity for about half a million kind of in the process of being constructed or being kind of near to be constructed. So it's possible that that's, uh, a little bit of a barrier. I mean, briefly going to your kind of point about the semi-permanence, I mean, if, if you were to go a little bit more, slightly more conspiracy theory-like, uh, one might wonder whether testing itself has actually created some sort of vested interest within China. So, you know, it's estimated there are 11 billion tests conducted uh, in Q2, about a quarter of a million testing booths also constructed. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd roll back that conspiracy. I think on a slightly more serious note, you know, the point is just, you know, they've invested a lot in this infrastructure. Maybe at the margin, that might keep you going with zero COVID for a little bit longer because you've kind of already got the infrastructure uh, set up and in, in place. Yeah, if nothing else, as, as Adam says, it, it pulls resources away from, from the vaccine rollout itself. So let's talk then about, about fiscal and monetary policy support, which has been done in China partially to offset this negative economic drag from COVID. And Bob, we're talking on a day when China has just printed some pretty strong credit growth numbers. What are authorities doing exactly in terms of offsetting policy support? Yeah, I mean, you know, over the course of this year, we've, we've seen PBOC easing a bit at the margin. But I think the really the big trend is the kind of increasing policy pivot towards uh, fiscal support. So, you know, I think that is kind of broadly consistent view that monetary policy is maybe a bit ineffective, countering the sort of supply shocks and the COVID-related restrictions that have been uh, put in place. But, you know, also illustrative, I think the authorities still want to hold the line a bit on de-risking, particularly on real estate there. So a bit wary of kind of pump priming the economy too aggressively when you know you've, you're, you're facing a big, big supply shock. And you, you mentioned it there, Paul, you know, consistent with that shift to fiscal, just got the Chinese credit data, super strong in June, coming out at almost 5.2 trillion RMB. 
um, definitely helped by the government's drive to issue 2022 local government bonds uh, by end of June. Indeed, that you know that pushed up government bond issuance and credit data to a record high, 1.6 trillion. Uh, and you know, I think maybe most interestingly, and it's not it's not been confirmed, but we've had reports by Bloomberg that Chinese authorities are considering moving around about 1.5 trillion B of 2023's special local government bond issuance into uh, the second half of 2022. Now, that's quite an unusual move. You know, normally the special local government bond issuance brings maybe forward a bit of issuance out of the fiscal year into the more the calendar year, so you're sort of March to, to Jan period. But moving it into the second half this year, I think really speaks about kind of a much more kind of maybe additional fiscal stimulus rather than just a kind of simple reprofiling as it's kind of being badged or, or kind of mulled over at the moment. Adam, should we should we think of this stimulus then as fully offsetting the, the drag from, from zero COVID? Is China in that sense a net positive for kind of the rest of the world, the global economy? Or is it the case that, you know, while you've still got this health situation going on, it's very hard for, for credit stimulus, for fiscal expansion to gain traction? How should we think about that, that balance? I mean, I think so far that most of the stimulus that we've seen out of China has really been aimed at balance sheet repair or, or keeping businesses in operation and not really at juicing up activity. You know, and on that front, on the monetary side, it's been somewhat less effective than on the, the fiscal side where you've seen a lot of the, the monetary support really getting trapped in the, the, the financial system. And so interbank rates are very low, but up until June anyway, credit growth had been pretty, pretty sluggish. Um, and on the fiscal side, you know, things have been a bit more helpful, but a lot of that stimulus has come from just tax cuts. You know, again, reducing the burden for businesses so that fewer will go out of business as a, a result of the slowdown. You know, on the, in terms of juicing up Demand really, that's just concentrated on infrastructure financing, which is kind of a the, the classic Chinese playbook, and that should provide some offset for the construction sector from this contraction in, in property investment. But net net, that's not going to create a lot of demand for for the global economy. But I do think you know what 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 Bob was talking about is probably important for the next six months. Is that you know China's fiscal support is really running out of room in a lot of ways. Um, so China runs or manages its fiscal system around this system of bond quotas, where the, the Ministry of Finance puts out a number for how many bonds it's going to issue for the year. And no matter what happens with the real economy, that's how many bonds they issue. And because growth has been worse than expected, you know, local governments have exhausted this year's quota already. So unless that quota from 2023 is brought forward or the 2022 quota is expanded, you know, local governments are facing a fiscal cliff basically for, for the rest of this year. And then next year, the Ministry of Finance itself faces a, a pretty severe fiscal cliff because it raised about 3 trillion RMB from other kind of one-off revenue sources like the PBOC contributed over a trillion RMB from its profits over the past three years to the government this year and other measures that it, it just won't be able to re- repeat. And so they really you know, need to figure something else out to, to keep the support going for the next six to nine months. Otherwise, the fiscal policy is going to run into a wall. So let's talk about, about politics then, because the 20th Party Congress is coming up. It's in, I think, October, November time. We don't have a, an exact date at this point. 
And the big event, obviously, at this 20th Party Congress is going to be Xi Jinping attempting to secure an unprecedented third term. Adam, is that third term guaranteed? I mean, has sort of the recent performance of the economy, the renewed COVID outbreaks, are any of those weakening his position in any in any material way or is should we basically count on this third and possibly a future fourth term for for Xi Jinping? Yeah I, I know that there have been a lot of media reports about Xi's position is weakening because you know the economy is contracting zero COVID looks like it's it's failing and kind of binding China to Russia doesn't look like a great decision at this point in time uh, but I do think that she's third term is pretty much locked down and there's no real credible threat against that. And, and that's really because the Communist Party, you know, is obviously set up along Leninist lines where you have this top-down control and then penetration of the party into all aspects of society. And so in those Leninist systems, there's really two levers of control. You have organization of the party or control of the personnel within the party, running the party. And then you have ideology, which controls the bounds for debate. And, and she has really demonstrated his control of, of both of those levers over the past year. So in terms of organizational control, I mean, the most obvious example of that is the never-ending anti-corruption drive, which just keeps any potential challengers in line. But we can also see that by looking at the, the, the turnover, the provincial level party leaders, which just concluded last week or the week before. And so 19 out of 31 of those leaders were appointed to the position in the last 18 months. And 16 of those leaders now have some sort of biographical link to Xi, meaning that they either worked with him in some previous posts in the past, or, or in some cases, because Xi is getting older, um, they worked for one of his deputies. And that's up from, from 10 leaders ahead of the, the 2017 National Party Congress. So you know, increasingly, the party elites are all coming from Xi's team, if you want to call it that. And then in terms of ideological control, the party passed a resolution on, on party history um, in November of last year, which was only the third time they published a document like that. So it was a pretty big deal. And the big takeaway from that document was what the party itself is calling the, the two establishments. So it, it established Xi as the, the core of the party, and it established Xi Jinping thought as the guiding position of the party. And so, you know, given that his control over organization and ideology, there's just no way that that a challenge can really emerge um, to push him aside. And how much should we read into the likelihood of she assuming the the chairman title, so putting him on a a kind of level with Mao in the the Communist Party pantheon? I mean, is there there a significance in that honorific? I mean, I guess the honest answer to that would be, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't, know if he'll go for that. I don't know if it will matter, to be honest. I mean, Xi Jinping thought now is written into the party constitution. It's been established as a guiding ideology. So even if she were, for whatever reason, to make the decision to follow Deng Xiaoping's lead and step back from a, a formal leadership position now, he would still be kind of the, the, you know, the most important political actor in China, I think. And so it doesn't really matter what title he, he takes. I guess you one way of interpreting that might just be to say three terms won't be enough for him. He's going to be the leader mm. for life. So continuing that that sort of Kremlinology or Beijingology, then Bob, what um, what do we know about the composition of the Politburo? Those people immediately under Xi, do they tell us something about 
his willingness to go for a fourth term or whether sort of heirs and successes are emerging from within the party machinery? I think, I think we, we might be able to kind of read the tea leaves a, li- a little bit on this one once, once those have been confirmed. Um, you know, that should give a bit of a sense about, you know, as Adam kind of said, whether there's a kind of viable successor, someone who would largely kind of carry on probably Xi's uh, vision and Xi Jinping thought. Um, but at the moment, you know, we're, we're just in a basically you know, wait and see. We need to see what that kind of composition of the Politburo uh, is going to look like. I mean, interestingly as well, on that one, there's quite a few people in the sort of standing committee uh, and kind of slightly lower down in the in the political hierarchy who are kind of coming up to kind of what would normally be considered retirement ages. So there could be some fairly big kind of reshuffles there in terms of the premier or other kind of quite important uh, posts within the within the Communist Party. But yeah, I think we're in a, in a wait and see as, as pretty much everyone I speak to on Chinese politics says it is very much a black box and we just don't really have very much light onto it at the, at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's for a final section then, let's talk a little bit about what that third term might hold, what the direction of policy might be in China um, beyond the Congress later this year. And Adam, the past couple of years, the regulatory and tech crackdown has clearly been a big theme, sort of supplanted by zero COVID more recently. But I think that crackdown had a large impact on markets. Was that a one-off or is the party, our regulators coming for other parts of, of industry next? Well, I think it was a one-off in the sense that you know, we're not going to have that exact round of, of regulation again, and then not necessarily in those the same companies in, in, in the second round. But I do think it's it's a symptom of kind of the, the party establishing a much more direct kind of guiding hand for the economy going forward. And I guess kind of that fits within Xi Jinping's vision of where he's trying to push the, the country as a whole over the next 15 years or however long he plans to stay in office. I guess his vision of, of kind of what he's trying to accomplish, I think you can kind of put into three bullet points. So the, you know, obviously the ultimate goal is, is national rejuvenation or you know, China reestablishing its, its global leadership position. And the next would be that Right now, we're going through this period of significant geopolitical and, and technological changes, um, or what the party always calls changes unseen in the century, which creates this opportunity for China. And so what she has really been pushing, or, or the top leadership in the party has been pushing, is that everybody needs to pull behind Xi Jinping's leadership um, to seize that opportunity. And I think it's that that final step that's really going to guide everything, that, you know, Within industries, especially those that touch technology or manufacturing, if they're falling out of line with that vision for the future, um, we will probably see more regulatory pressure on those those industries going forward. And what about growth targets then, Bob? So China is fairly unlikely to meet its growth target this year, given the weakness earlier on. Is China post-growth targets and focusing on other policy priorities, or are they going to still be a big part of what the economy is doing? It's a really good question. I think for now, they're, they're still kind of clinging on to the to the growth targets. Uh, but, you know, we have seen this gradual shift in, in policies and emphasis from the authorities, you know, more emphasis on social cohesion, which is common prosperity, and then more in emphasis as well on what I could call resilience. So that could include both the domestic economy in terms of like de-risking property, but also kind of more resilience, less dependence on the West, and that kind of fits in the, the mold of kind of dual circulation 
uh, as well. But you know, there's maybe a few hints here that the growth targets certainly matter less than they used to. I mean, last year's growth target of 6% was amazingly easy to hit. There'd be no quarter and quarter growth from Q1 to Q4. GDP still would have come in at 6% just due to the, the, the base effects. So, you know, that could hint maybe a little bit the growth targets uh, are kind of on the way out. That said, I've been a little bit surprised at some of the recent reaffirmations uh, of, of this year's target. You know, as you've said, it does look to us like it's going to be out of sight. Um, and then also it's kind of shock proofing the economy to some extent, you know, including kind of making it more resilient to tensions with the US. That might well be at a cost the kind of authorities uh, are, are willing willing to pay. But, you know, we do also need to be a bit mindful. There's still kind of various high level policy goals around growth, such as, you know, making China a more a moderately prosperous society. And some of these are, of course, still dependent on kind of growth rates uh, remaining, remaining very high. Uh, and I probably just add on to that, there's still a, a geopolitical element to growth too. China's hard and soft power is directly related, I think, in many ways, the size of its economy. So there are still kind of reasons to kind of go for growth uh, in, in that sense too. Brilliant. Adam Wolf from Absolute Strategy Research, Bob Gilhui from here at Aberdeen. Thank you both for some fascinating insights, certainly some interesting months and years to come in China and its impact on the world. And thank you to you for listening to Macrobytes. We'd love you to like or subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. But until next time, goodbye and good luck out there. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.